0: Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Down to Sleep. Tonight I will be reading a book of Norse mythology to you whilst you fall asleep. If you have found this podcast useful and would like to join our sleepy book club and get a bonus episode every week and episodes that are twice as long, then join us at patreon.com slash downtosleep. Thank you. Let's begin. Norse Mythology, The Religion of Our Forefathers, by R.B. Anderson. Mythology is a system of myths a collection of popular legends, fables, tales or stories relating to the gods, heroes, demons or other beings whose names have been preserved in popular belief. Such tales are not found in the traditions of the ancient Greeks, Hindus and Egyptians only, but every nation has had its system of mythology, and that of the ancient Norsemen is more simple, earnest, miraculous, stupendous and divine than any other mythological system of which we have record. The myth is the oldest form of truth. Mythology is the knowledge which the ancients had of the divine. The object of mythology is to find God and come to him. Without a written revelation, this may be done in two ways. By studying the intellectual, moral, and physical nature of man, for evidence of the existence of God may be found in the proper study of man. Or by studying nature in the outward world, in its general structure, adaptations, and dependencies. Truthfully, it may be said that God manifests himself in nature. Our Norse forefathers, for it is their religion that we are to present in this volume, had no clearly defined knowledge of any god outside of themselves and nature. Like the ancient Greeks, they had only a somewhat vague idea of a supreme god, whom the Rhapsodists or Skald in the Elder Edda dare not name, and whom few it is said ever look far enough to see, in the language of the elder Edda, then one is born, greater than all, he becomes strong, with the strengths of earth, the mightiest king men call him, fast knit in peace, with all powers, then comes another, yet more mighty, but him I dare not venture to name, few further may look, than to where Odin, To meet the wolf goes. We must admit that of this supreme god our forefathers had only a somewhat vague conception, and to many of them he was almost wholly unknown. Their god was a natural human god, a person. There can be no genuine poetry without impersonation, and a perfect system of mythology is a finished poem. Mythology is, in fact, religious truth expressed in poetical language. It ascribes all events and phenomena. In the outward world to a personal cause each cause is some divinity or other some god or demon in this manner when the ancients heard the echo from the woods or mountains they did not think as we now do that the waves of sound were reflected but that there stood a dwarf a personal being who repeated the words spoken by themselves this dwarf had to have a history a biography And this gave rise to a myth. To our poetic ancestors, the forces of nature were not veiled under scientific names. As Carlyle truthfully remarks, they had not yet learned to reduce their fundamental elements and lecture learnedly about this beautiful green rock-built flowery earth with its trees, mountains, and many sounding waters, about the various winds that sweep through it, when they saw black clouds gathering and shutting out the king of day and witnessed them pouring out rain and ice and fire, and heard thunder roll. They did not think, as we now do, of accumulated electricity discharged from clouds to earth, and show in the lecture room how something like these powerful shafts of lightning could be ground out of glass or silk. But they ascribed the phenomenon to a mighty divinity, Thor, who in his thunder chariot rides through the clouds, and strikes with his huge hammer, Mjolnir. The theory of our forefathers furnishes food for the imagination, for our poetical nature, while the reflection of the waves of sound and the discharge of electricity is merely dry reasoning, mathematics and physics. To our ancestors, nature presented herself in her naked, beautiful and awful majesty, while to us in this age of Newtons and Millers, she's enwrapped in a multitude of profound scientific phrases— These phrases make us flatter ourselves that we have fathomed her mysteries and revealed her secret workings, while in point of fact we are as far from the real bottom as our ancestors were, but we have robbed ourselves to a sad extent of the poetry of nature. Mary Cornwall might complain. O ye delicious fables, where the wave and the woods were peopled, the air with things so lovely, why has science grave scattered afar your sweet imaginings? The old Norseman said the mischief-maker Loki cuts for mere sport the hair of the goddess Sif, but the gods compel him to furnish her new hair. Loki gets dwarfs to forge her golden hair, which grows spontaneously. We, their prosaic descendants, say the heat Loki scorches the grass, Sif's hair, but the same physical agent, heat, sets the forces of nature to work again and new grass with golden, that is to say bright, colour, springs up again. Thus our ancestors spoke of all the workings of nature as though they were caused by personal agents, and instead of saying as we now do that winter follows summer, and explaining how the annual revolutions of the earth produce the changes that are called seasons, they took a more poetical view of the phenomenon, and said that the blind god Hodr, winter, was instigated by Loki, the heat, to slay Balder, the summer god. The Norse mythology, we say then, shows what the religion of our ancestors was, and their religion is the main fact that we care to know about them. Knowing this well, we can easily account for the rest. Their religion is the soul of their history. Their religion tells us what they felt. Their feelings produced their thoughts, and their thoughts were the parents of their acts. When we study their religion we discover the unseen and spiritual fountain from which all outward acts welled forth, and by which the character of these was determined. The mythology is neither the history, nor the poetry, nor the natural philosophy of our ancestors. It is the germ and nucleus of them all. It is history for its treats of events, but it is not history in the ordinary acceptance of that word. For the persons figuring therein have never existed, It is natural philosophy, for it investigates the origin of nature, but it is not natural philosophy, according to modern ideas, for it personifies and defies nature. It is metaphysics, for it studies the science and laws of being, but it is not metaphysics in our sense of the word, for it rapidly overleaps all categories. It is poetry, in its very essence, but its pictures are streams that flow together. The chapter closes with an extract from Thomas Carlyle's essays on heroes and hero worship. In that strange island, Iceland, burst up, the geologists say, by fire from the bottom of the sea, a wild land of barrenness and lava, swallowed many months of the year in black tempests, yet with a wild gleaming beauty in summertime, towering up there stern and grim in the north ocean, With its snow yokels, roaring geysers, sulfur pools and horrid volcanic chasms. Like the waste, chaotic battlefield of frost and fire. Where of all places we least looked for literature or written memorials. The record of these things was written down. On the seaboard of this wild land is a rim of grassy country. Where cattle can subsist and men by means of them and what the sea yields. And it seems they were poetic men men who had deep thoughts in them, and uttered musically their thoughts. Much would be lost had Iceland not been burst up from the sea, not been discovered by the Northmen. The old Norse poets were many of them natives of Iceland. Seymund, one of the early Christian priests there, who perhaps had a lingering fondness for paganism, collected certain of their old pagan song, just about becoming obsolete then poems or chants, of a mythic, prophetic, mostly all-religious character. This is what Norse critics call the Elder, or Poetic Edda. Edda, a word of uncertain etymology, is thought to signify ancestress. Chapter 2 Why call this mythology Norse? Ought it not rather be called Gothic or Teutonic? In its original form, The mythology which is to be presented in this volume was common to all the Teutonic nations. It spread itself geographically over England, most of France and Germany, as well as Denmark, Sweden, Norway and Iceland. But when the Teutonic nations parted, took possession of their respective countries and began to differ one nation from the other in language, custom and social and political institutions, they were influenced by the peculiar features of the countries which they respectively inhabited the germ of mythology which each nation brought with it into its change conditions of life would also be subject to changes and developments in harmony and keeping with the various conditions of climate language customs social and political institutions and other influences that nourished it while the fundamental myths remained common to all teutonic nations Hence, we might in one sense speak of a Teutonic mythology. That would then be the mythology of the Teutonic peoples, as it was known to them while they all lived together some four or five hundred years before the birth of Christ, in the southeastern part of Russia, without any of the peculiar features that have been added later by any of the several branches of that race. From this time, we have no Teutonic literature. In another sense, we must recognize a distinct German mythology, distinct English mythology, and even make distinction between mythologies of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. That it is only of the Norse mythology that we have anything like a complete record was alluded to in the first chapter, but we will now make a more thorough examination of this fact. The different branches of the Teutonic mythology died out and disappeared as Christianity became introduced, first in France about 500 years after the birth of Christ, in England one or 200 years later, still later in Germany where the Saxons, Christianized by Charlemagne about AD 800, were the last heathen people. But, in Norway, Sweden, Denmark and Iceland, the original Gothic heathenism lived longer and more independently than elsewhere, and had more favourable opportunities to grow and mature. The ancient mythological or pagan religion flourished here until about the middle of the 11th century. Or to speak more accurately... Christianity was not completely introduced in Iceland before the beginning of the 11th century. In Denmark and Norway, some 20 to 30 years later, while in Sweden, paganism was not wholly eradicated before 1150. Yet neither Norway, Sweden, nor Denmark give us any mythological literature. This is furnished us only by the Norsemen, who had settled in Iceland. The Norse mythology differs widely from the Greek. They are the same in essence, that is to say, both are a recognition of the forces and phenomena of nature as gods and demons. But all mythologies are the same in this respect. And the differences between the various mythological systems consist in the different ways in which nature has impressed different peoples, and in the different manner in which they have comprehended the universe. personified or deified the various forces and phenomena of nature... Memory among the Greeks is Nemesini, the mother of the Muses, while among the Norsemen it is represented by Munin, one of the ravens perched upon Odin's shoulders. Masculine Heimdall, god of the rainbow among the Norsemen, we find in Greece as the feminine Iris, who charged the clouds with water from the lakes and the rivers, in order that it might fall upon the earth in gentle fertilizing showers. The Norse boulder is the Greek Adonis, Frigg, the mother of Balder, mourns the death of her son while Aphrodite sorrows for her special favourite, the young rosy shepherd, Adonis. Her grief at his death, which was caused by a wild boar, was so great that she would not allow the lifeless body to be taken from her arms until the gods consoled her by decreeing that her lover might continue to live half the year, during the spring and summer on earth, while she might spend the other half with him in the lower world. Thus, Balder and Adonis are summer gods, and Frigg and Aphrodite are goddesses of gardens and flowers. The Norse god of thunder, Thor, who among the Norsemen is only the protector of heaven and earth, is the Greek Zeus, the father of gods and men. The gods of the Greeks are essentially free from decay and death. They live forever on Olympus, eating ambrosial food and drinking the nectar of immortality. In Norse mythology, on the other hand, Odin himself dies, and is swallowed by the Fenris wolf. Thor conquers the Midgard serpent, but retreats only nine paces and falls poisoned by serpent's breath. The body of the good and beautiful Balder is consumed in the flames of his funeral pile. The Greek dwelt in bright and sunny lands, where the change from summer to winter brought with it no feelings of overpowering gloom. The outward nature exercised a cheering influence upon him, making him happy and this happiness he exhibited in his mythology. The Greek cared less to commune with silent mountains and moaning winds and heaving sea. He spent his life to a great extent in the cities, where his mind would become more interested in human affairs, where he could share his joys and sorrows with his kinsmen. While the Greek thus was brought up to artificial society of the town, the hardy Norseman was inured to the rugged independence of the country. While the life and the nature surrounding it in the south would naturally have a tendency to make the Greek more human, or rather to deify that which is human, the popular life and nature in the north would have a tendency to form, in the minds of the Norsemen, a sublimer and profounder conception of the universe. The Greek clings with tenacity to the beautiful earth, The earth is his mother Zeus, surrounded by his gods and goddesses, sitting on his golden throne on Olympus, top of the mountains in the cloud. But that is not lofty enough for the spirit of the Norsemen. Odin's Valhalla is in heaven. Odin himself is not the highest god. Muspelheim is situated above Asaheim, and in Muspelheim is Gimli, where reigns a god who is mightier than Odin the god they venture not to name. And that is where we close the book on Down to Sleep tonight. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope that this helps you get down to sleep, something a little bit different to usual, but I hope you enjoyed it nonetheless. I will see you next week for another episode where we'll return to our novels. Till next time, good night.